0: Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing
1: difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a
0: one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-c-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Teaching is tedious work. No matter how many times you explain something, for every one person who doesn't get it, there are a thousand people you can't get to. It's even harder when the teaching itself is so counterintuitive that even people who think they get it have to keep relearning it. It's no wonder that people believe the New Testament is saying something new. But the New Testament is not new. If it sounds new, it's because you have not been paying attention and as a result have fallen yet further behind those who came before you. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 15 to 28. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This
1: is Father Mark Bulos, And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And
0: you are listening to episode 145 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, Richard and I were reading Mark and realizing the extent to which Ezekiel controls the New Testament. It's unbelievable. This idea of the spirit moving, of God's proximity in the wilderness, the stance from Genesis against civilization... And now we see this perspective, this point, pressed further.
1: The point of Ezekiel in those first few chapters is that while Ezekiel has been led captive out of the land into Babylon and is sitting at the river Kebar out in the wilderness, God comes to him in God's chariot to deliver to him his word so that he can preach, interestingly, both in Jerusalem and in the wilderness. Because God can do that. God can pick up Ezekiel, put him in Jerusalem to preach, and then pick him back up and put him back in the wilderness to preach. God's word cannot be held fast in one place, just as God can't be held fast in one place. He does not sit on a throne in a building. He sits on a throne on a chariot that moves wherever the wind, wherever the spirit carries it. As he was going
0: along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. So as he approaches civilization outside of Jerusalem, namely Galilee of the Gentiles, he now is looking for disciples, followers, and he is not going once again to the elite, He is going to
1: the rabble to recruit his followers. Right. He's staying so far outside of civilization, on the edge of civilization, and he's found some very rough, uncivilized people, fishermen. I have relatives who are fishermen, so I don't want to say too much about fishermen. But these are people who are not known for their education, we are not known for their knowledge, and not known for their religious authority by any means.
0: He's going to a rough blue collar neighborhood in an area of the country that the people of Jerusalem consider tainted by false religion and polluted communities. If they consider them at all. If they consider them at all. That's where God is going. So if he does approach civilization, it's the part of civilization that you consider uncivilized. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. A nice
1: play on words, this idea that we are interested in gathering up people. And that's what he said. The kingdom of God is at hand. And since Jesus is the emissary and the son of his father, he has the right then to declare who's in and who's out. And so he's saying, look, I need people who are going to help me find people who can be members of this kingdom. Who are the citizens going to be? Immediately,
0: they left their nets and followed him. And here, the metaphor of the net is important because it represents something that they made with their hands. It represents the work of their hands. And so when he's talking about fishing, it's the classic tension in the Bible. Everybody, when they talk, is talking about money every human being when they talk about what they're going to do they're talking about money jesus is not talking about money so if you're thinking about fishing in terms of how you make your living you're wrong i'm talking about fishing in terms of love going out to seek out people to serve them to bring them into the fold and to care for them so that they can be raised up to care for others. That's what the business is here.
1: I think what you say is really important, Father, because the first thing they do is walk away from their livelihood.
0: It says immediately in the Greek, Ephes, straight away, without hesitation, right? It's absolutely clear. This is what needs to happen. I'm not even going to deliberate. I'm not gonna be self-conscious. This man called me and I'm gonna follow him and leave everything behind. Going on a little farther, so he's pushing further into the wilderness, into the wilderness of the Gentiles, meaning he's going to the place that is off limits. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. This is the point I made earlier about the work of man's hands. What are you mending? What are you putting your energy in? What, food for the stomach? money for the bank is this what life is is this the purpose of man i find these texts so beautiful because it asks all the big questions of life in a very simple way i question how many people listening to this podcast if they heard the gospel would give up everything for it
1: well i've heard people before say oh i'm a disciple of jesus When you hear what these disciples did, Jesus said, let's go. And they literally dropped everything. They
0: didn't have a parish meeting. They didn't call the mayor. They didn't go and gossip and deliberate. What do we think? They saw something true
1: and they got up and they left everything behind. Because they wanted to be citizens of this kingdom that Jesus is preaching.
0: You can't have a compromise when it comes to the gospel. You can't have your life and then also do the gospel on the side. There's no gospel career or gospel hobby. Either it consumes you or it doesn't. Either you know it's the truth and you give yourself to it, or you know your church life, whatever that means, becomes just a kind of a recreation right alongside the time you spend at the movies or at dinner at your parents. We have to be serious, and that's what's so powerful. These men are simple men and they know the truth when they see it, and they respond to it with all their heart. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and went away to follow him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Capernaum in Hebrew means the village of grace. Even in Arabic, it's very similar in Arabic. Kafr, Naum, Naamet, means grace. This is the town, the village of grace. How can you have a town that has grace if it's in Galilee where even the Jews are considered tainted because they intermingle with Gentiles? Yes, there's a synagogue in Capernaum, but Jews from Jerusalem would look down their nose at Jews going to a synagogue in a blue collar neighborhood
1: among the unclean Gentiles. Now that he has his first disciples, he begins to teach. He was sent out to the wilderness. He was tempted. He gets his disciples and then he goes to a synagogue to teach. You have the temple, which was a center of Jewish life, but that only existed in Jerusalem. There wasn't necessarily an institution for day-to-day or weekly worship, so to speak. So the synagogue started developing around this time, maybe a little bit earlier than this time, as a way Jews could gather, around the scroll, listen to the scroll, and a teaching around the scroll. The sacrifices and all that kind of stuff, that happened in Jerusalem, and you'd have to go there on a pilgrimage a few times a year. But the synagogue was the week-to-week, day-to-day preaching of the word and teaching there. So Jesus goes on the Sabbath into the synagogue to teach. They
0: were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And here, that's exactly how Paul teaches. So this is an important point in the New Testament, that it's not Jesus who has the authority. It's not Paul who has the authority. It's not John the Baptist who has the authority. It's the Word that holds authority, in the same way that God the Father was pleased with the work of his Word in the baptism of his Son, whom he named in Mark. The credit for whatever the word achieves and whatever the word's value is, defers back to God. But the one who speaks that word speaks with God's authority because the word is the word is the word. When you write a will and you die, the will holds power and the one who executes the will
1: holds power. It's no joke. It's your word that exists after your death. So if you tell me that the one preaching to you the word doesn't have
0: power, it's because you reject God's power. You don't believe, as I've said before, you don't believe the book the priest holds in his hand is divine. And if
1: you don't believe that, I can't help you. Now, an interesting thing in this section here is that we don't actually hear what Jesus teaches. He doesn't say. He went, he taught, and then we hear about the reaction of the people that they were amazed. The word that he preaches is not there. So, The focus then is on the people and how they react. Now we can say, ooh, it must've been something awesome if the people are that amazed. No, that's not what it's trying to say. What it's trying to say is that, oh, you think this is a good teaching, do you? Now begins the paternity test. Are you the child of the father who brings you this word? So you can be as amazed as you want. Will you follow the word? I hear this all the time. Oh, I'm loyal, I'm loyal, I'm loyal, I'm loyal. Okay, well, let's see. Do you actually follow the word that the one you're loyal to is preaching? Or are you just impressed that he speaks with authority? If being impressed does not matter. There's a reason why Jesus picked very unimpressive people to go along with it. It's two Corinthians.
0: Wow, Jesus has such authority, but why is he such a wimp? Or why are his disciples such low-class people? doesn't jesus understand that you need to have you know some networking with some smart people in order to get ahead in this world can he like clean himself up a little bit look a bit nicer yeah yeah we get all that jesus but at the end of the day we still have to get along in the world don't we that's the compromise that i know our listeners always are struggling with yeah yeah father mark but we still have to run a church that's not my
1: problem this is what the gospel says so far, Jesus has not talked about running a church. <laughs> so far. We'll see, it. we'll see if this comes later, but I don't remember this in the Gospel of Mark.
0: Just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. A man who is burdened with an unclean spirit, meaning a spirit of false teaching, it's not the Holy Spirit, it's the spirit of false teaching. This person, who is untaught, that's the point of the metaphor, recognizes who Jesus is. But Jerusalem doesn't. Again, everyone looks at this wrong. If you're looking at it from the perspective of Jerusalem, oh, look at the poor man with the unclean spirit, he's so terrible. But Mark is telling you, whatever he is, he gets it. He understands who Jesus is, understands what Jesus' proximity to him implies, and he's honest.
1: You think that you are Jesus sitting in Jerusalem. He's absolutely honest because he realizes, shoot, I cannot continue on as an unclean spirit when Jesus is around. I can't do it. Did you come to destroy us? Because you're the Holy One of God. If you're the Holy One of God, that means you're the one who bears the Holy Spirit, as we saw earlier. So am I going to still be able to do exist? No, actually you can't, because a human being can only have one spirit. So either you're going to continue with this unclean spirit, or you're going to continue with the spirit of the Holy One of God. And it's really that clear cut. As soon as I see that there is an unclean spirit, I know it's been an unclean spirit all the way along, because unclean spirits. Like you said, Father, they can act right. They can say the right thing. But in the end, the test will show that it's an unclean spirit, not the spirit of the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked
0: him saying, be quiet and come out of him. So now Jesus is healing him in the synagogue where he's teaching. So he's correcting, he's correcting with his teaching and thus supplanting the false spirit and replacing it with the spirit of God, which is the teaching of scripture now in mark you pointed out correctly that we don't ever hear what jesus is teaching but the point is once you finish mark which is just an invitation card you're supposed to go back and read the pentateuch because what jesus is teaching is what the bible teaches which is a very lengthy broad literature so that is what he's giving to this poor gentile man who until now has been left to the unclean spirits
1: Because no one in Jerusalem wanted to bother to visit Galilee. And it's significant that he says, be quiet. Because the teaching is everything. The unclean spirit has to stop teaching if there's going to be space for the gospel. And then come out of him, meaning don't corrupt his speech and his actions anymore Because his speech and his actions must follow 100% from the spirit. Like I've said hundreds of times on this podcast, the spirit is what infuses the human being and causes the human being to act in a particular way. If you have a good spirit, then good actions, good words result. If you have a bad spirit or an evil spirit or an unclean spirit, then your actions and words are unclean. So Jesus is speaking in pure binary terms. If I am going to enter, if my word is going to enter, if my spirit is going to enter so that this person can act and live according to a member of the kingdom, which I'm preaching, then the unclean spirit must go completely. There can be nothing remaining. Throwing him into convulsions,
0: the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Here, again, we have this reaction, this false reaction that they're impressed with his authority. Yes, he holds authority, but this isn't about power in the same way that fishing isn't about money, even though it is about power, but not power the way you understand it for personal gain its power for the sake of the common good and the common good is to do the will
1: of God's teaching right whether they're amazed or not is not material because once you're amazed then you're actually under judgment so you think this teaching is great huh okay then there's going to be certain actions that would result from this teaching let's see if you think those are so great because that's the only fruit that can come of your being amazed by this. Otherwise, it's just a good feeling that's going to pass. When you and I were talking over the weekend about the parable of the sower, sure, the seed's gonna land. The seed might even sprout a root, but is it gonna bear fruit? That's the question. So being amazed, that's the root, but it's not fruit. But that's the problem with the new teaching, the way that it's referred to as a
0: new teaching with authority. Whenever people hear the gospel preached, and I've seen this with my own eyes, they hear it as though it's the newest, most exciting thing they've ever heard. I mean, it's been around for millennia. But the reason it always strikes people as new is A, because Jerusalem wasn't doing their job. I can't stress this enough. But B, because it's so different than the way human beings talk. And when people hear the gospel, and recognize this fundamental difference, they either dismiss it as being stupid and absurd, or they see it as the pearl of great price, the way the apostles did it earlier in this section, and they drop everything to go after it. Those are the two reactions. Either the priest is crazy, or Paul is crazy, or John the Baptist is crazy, or Jesus is crazy, or I've never heard this before. Why aren't people teaching this? Actually, they are, and they have been. It's just finally reached
1: your ears. And when they're not, there's a book, actually, that we're uh, all referring to. It's called the Bible, and you can read it anytime you'd like.
0: So the way to hear new teaching is not that Jesus is being an innovator.
1: The way to hear new teaching is that it's new to their ears. And there's a judgment that comes along with this. And this is the thing also, is they hear this as if it's new. They're impressed that this is so fantastic. And then they say, even the unclean spirits obey him. So here's the question. Will you obey him? If the unclean spirits are willing to obey him, if they are compelled to obey him, there's nothing they can do against their own will. They cry out as they're pulled out of this person. Now you are so amazed. Are you willing to obey it?
0: Well, as a scribe or a Pharisee in Jerusalem, I understand the importance of modesty, and I would never speak the way he's speaking. Let me check the Bible, which I wrote, and see whether or not he's complying. That's not obedience. Obedience is incompatible with that stance. Yeah, It's hubris. You have an institution you built, and Jesus is messing it up for you because he's saying your institution is irrelevant. He's not saying that we have to like get rid of your institution. I mean, you can keep your temple. Just don't tell me that these poor people in Galilee need you. They have a synagogue, which, by the way, is a Pharisaic tradition. That's the irony of these texts. They're making out of the Pharisee and the scribe a bad guy, when in fact it was the Pharisaic movement that was arguing what the New Testament is arguing, that you don't need a temple, we need to take the teaching out. Because they were reading the same Ezekiel that the Pauline school was reading.
1: And I love that you use the word hubris because you know if you look at the classical understanding of hubris among the Greeks, hubris was once the gods decide your fate, You can either accept it and accept that fate, or the one who has hubris rejects that fate and they end up dying a miserable death because they couldn't accept the authority of the gods and the word that the gods had appointed to that person's destiny. Even the unclean spirits had to submit and obey. So this means that you who disobey day after day after day have more pride and are more unclean than even the unclean spirits who possess this man.
0: Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee, so it's working.
1: It's working, at least in the boondocks where Jesus is. It's
0: working the way the Father wants it to work, and that's why the Father is pleased. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father.